Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. We're going to kick things off on a happy note. New Atlas is reporting that a, quote, hearing contact lens claimed to outperform regular hearing aids is about to hit the market. Oh, like this isn't theoretical. This is like we're about to sell these things. Well, let's see here. Maybe. Maybe. The device is being manufactured, so hopefully it'll hit the market soon. But most hearing aids today, they've got sounds that are emitted by a tiny speaker that is directed down the ear canal. And so from the speaker to the actual eardrum, there's a little bit of space that the sound has to travel and sound can actually degrade through that small amount of air. And so what makes this new hearing aid, and they've got a really great diagram if you want to see it as well, It basically has one external component of the setup, which is a battery-equipped signal processing module that's worn behind the ear, and that is hardwired to a smaller module that sits inside the ear canal. And this is where it gets different, because instead of the speaker being in that module that sits inside the ear canal, that module is in turn connected to a piezoelectric micro-loudspeaker, which is placed against the eardrum. Which sounds like, woo, that sounds really intense, but the actual micro loudspeaker is custom made for each user to, you know, make sure it actually fits the eardrum. And what mm-hmm. they think is that because the transmitted sounds don't have to travel through that air gap within the ear canal, there's less distortion and less interference from wind noise blowing in the ear. They're claiming that the technology is capable of amplifying sound across the complete audible frequency spectrum, which apparently conventional hearing aids are unable to do. Hmm. Yeah. But so if this thing is permanently in your ear, though, does that mean there are issues with like swimming and taking a shower and stuff? Or earwax. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that there are regular checkups. What this article says is that the internal components do stay inside the ear canal more or less permanently, but there's no surgery required for that initial Mm. installation. So, you know, I guess if dirt and such can't get in, maybe it just needs to come out and be cleaned periodically. Mm. Good good questions for Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) It is actually cool because the piezo mics are often used to pick up sounds from, uh, you know, sensitive surfaces used in Mm -hmm. art projects, things like that. They have lots of utilizations. That's Mm -hmm. like the spy thing where you like put it against the glass and it can like hear something three rooms away or something. Yeah. I mean, it's designed to be sensitive. They're typically flat, right? And so what they're doing is, I guess, picking up on those vibrations vibrations a little bit more directly and now we're applying that directly to the eardrum. Vibrasonic says that this can be installed in one or both years. It should be approved for use as of this autumn, at least for the northern hemisphere, and mm. pricing will reportedly be similar to that of existing high-quality hearing aids. Yeah, which mm. is to say very very expensive. But it's yeah. all right. <laughs> I yeah. mean, if it's replacing an expensive product and it's brand new. I guess it can be expensive too. That's fine. <laughs> it's allowed. Jennifer approved. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'll accept it. <laughs> Fair enough. Next link. Next link. 
This article comes to us from phys.org, as in physics, not fizzy. <laughs> and it's titled, Team Develops Quantum Simulator with 256 Qubits, Largest of Its Kind Ever Created. Oh, wow. A team of physicists from the Harvard-MIT Center for Ultra-Cold Atoms and other universities has developed a special type of quantum computer known as a programmable quantum simulator capable of operating with 256 quantum bits or qubits. Qubits are the fundamental building blocks on which quantum computers run and the source of their massive processing power. Mikhail Lukin, the co-director of the Harvard Quantum Initiative, said, This moves the field into a new domain where no one has ever been to thus far. Mm. We are entering a completely new part of the quantum world. Because we totally understood the existing part of the quantum world, so we're yeah. ready to just move on to more. <laughs> yeah, it's very evocative and a little ominous. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> I recommend checking out some of the pictures in this article because it's really wild. You've got these two people in this pretty small room just stuffed with servers, tons of wires, all these boxes, like definitely <laughs> contraptions that like, I don't know what they are. They must be, you know, quantum <laughs> machines uh -huh. or whatever. And it's totally going to be the kind of thing where like 50 years from now, our, you know, kids and grandkids are going to be looking at that picture going, look, a quantum computer used to take up a whole room, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's really not even a whole room in this one it's literally just a bunch of components granted it is a lot of components but they're all just spread out across the table they're wired and hooked up to <laughs> various it's a hot mess yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so it's my understanding from absorbing a little bit of this article and some of what i've read essentially is that qubits exist in three states or rather a quantum superposition of two states simultaneously mm. which I don't really know how to describe beyond that, but uh, <laughs> you can kind of think of it where we are now. I imagine us being a little bit like where we used to be with transistors, right. where if you were building RAM or a computer, you just probably had a bunch laid out and were messing around with them. That's mm -hmm. what it sounds like the stage we're at now. Yeah. Eventually, we'll develop these design patterns and architectures with qubits that you know become a, a standard 50 years in the future and are in everybody's pockets. Yeah. I mean, that's what I really am like, how long before this is in my house? Because on the one hand, I'm like, it's got to be a really long time. But on the other hand, they could come out and be like, oh, two years from now. And I'd be like, OK, maybe you're I mean, that could be true. How do I know? Like, <laughs> yeah, just the speed at which some of this stuff moves. Mm -hmm. You Once you start getting that exponential growth of like we did 256. Now we're going to do 1024. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And I mean, Moore's law says that there's a certain rate at which the speed mm -hmm. of a processor doubles every certain number of years. And I think it's something like, I think it's contracting, essentially. Right, the it's getting shorter. quantum computers yeah. go even farther beyond that. Like, I think they'll just blow the scale up completely. Mm -hmm. So the workhorse of this new platform is a device called the Spatial Light Modulator. Every single piece of this technology sounds awesome, uh, which is used <laughs> to shape an optical wave front to produce hundreds of individually focused optical tweezer beams. Wow. The initial loading of these atoms into the tweezers is random, and the researchers use a second set of moving optical tweezers to drag the atoms to their desired locations, eliminating the initial randomness. And Abadi finishes by saying, this work enables a vast number of new scientific directions, and we are nowhere near the limits of what can be done with these systems. Yeah, I'm sure. And just to potentially clear up any misunderstandings, my understanding of qubits and how they work is that they really do need to solve specific types of problems that can only be solved by quantum computers. Aww. So maybe one day we'll have consumer computers that are redesigned to work with quantum, but for now, it'll probably just be used to advance 
advance really crazy science stuff and academic yeah. research. So it's never going to bring me cat videos just bigger and faster and more high res. That's not I what it's going to be. I don't think never. I think not yet. I right. Think never say never. <laughs> you know what? Give it 50 years. Maybe it'll bring high res cat videos into your dreams. Like, you know, we don't know what we can do with yeah, this yeah. yet. Exactly. Yeah. You can just imagine the cat and it will create a hologram for you. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a little dystopian if I imagine the infrastructure that goes around it. Yeah. You know, I like, mean, I almost imagine you like in a tube, Angie, <laughs> with that level of. I mean, <laughs> for the right cat video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was promised a certain future when I saw Wally and I'm just hastening its arrival. That's all. Yeah, we should all be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Dr. Joe Schwartz at McGill University in Canada has brought us a stinging rebuttal of some common mosquito myths. Uh-oh. And he opens the article in a very attention-grabbing way with a description of how guests of the Cypress Cove Nudist Resort in Florida commonly repel mosquito bites, which is to say they aggressively fondle the leaves of citronella plants that they have deliberately <laughs> placed near their communal pool, then rub the residue on their inner thighs. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, it ends up being one of the first myths that he busts. Studies have shown that as a hmm. compound, citronella offers only a very slight repellent effect on mosquitoes, and it has to be the full concentrated version from the plant. Which is, to be fair, what the nudists are using when they rub it directly off the plant. But all the various lotions and sunscreens that market themselves as being infused with citronella are mm -hmm. statistically incapable of helping anyone. Dadgummit. I know. The citronella candles that people like to burn in their backyards do work a little, he says. But research has shown that the smoke from the candle is actually doing more work in that case than the citronella. So you could mm. burn any candle, basically, and it would be pretty effective. Yeah. They've also done a lot of research into why mosquitoes show a distinct preference for some individuals over others. And that's actually something we've experienced in my household. My daughter is an absolute mosquito magnet. The four Aww. of us can be outside together and she'll be covered in mosquito bites and the Aww. rest of us won't have a single one. Uh, that's me. <laughs> Are you? Are you a mosquito magnet? Yeah. One time I went to Hawaii on vacation with my mom. We went for a hike for about four hours. She had two or three mosquito bites. I had 40. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Well, you may or may not be happy to know there are a lot of potential biological reasons for that. Sweet. <laughs> One organic compound that is very attractive to mosquitoes is lactic acid, which is oh. a byproduct of muscle metabolism. So people who work out a lot or perhaps go hiking in Hawaii are probably going to attract more mosquitoes. Another one is octanol, which is a compound produced when plant material is digested, meaning vegetarians are more attractive to mosquitoes, which makes it seem like overall being healthy is not getting a good rap here. It's like, don't yeah, exercise, was, don't eat right. <laughs> I have been a vegetarian for most of my life until the last few years, so that definitely tracks. Wow. So it's also been theorized that a B vitamin deficiency can be attractive to mosquitoes, but studies on that have been inconclusive so far. And mosquitoes are definitely attracted to a number of fatty acids that are produced by certain skin bacteria. So using antibacterial soaps may be having an effect there. They haven't gone fully into detail of which bacteria are responsible. But even before the advent of modern hygiene, it's been known for a long time that mosquitoes strongly prefer animal skin to human skin. So some Mediterranean cultures have historically allowed pigs to sleep in their bedrooms to basically act as a tastier target. Oh, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, 
if I had a pig, I guess I would let it sleep in my bedroom. I don't know. <laughs> like people, people have pet pigs, and I feel like the people who have pet pigs are the kind of people who would let them sleep in their bedroom. So, ooh, we need to put up a poll somewhere because I, I'm not so sure about that. But, no, you, you don't know, think so. <laughs> I, who knows? I could find a really cute pig, and I will end that thought there. <laughs> <laughs> On the non-biological side, Dr. Schwartz also says that the so-called ultrasonic products on the market which supposedly play a mosquito-repellent sound at a frequency that humans can't hear, those have been conclusively debunked. They don't work. What does work for large-scale mosquito control is a sound played at the exact frequency of a female mosquito's buzzing wings. But what happens in that case is that the male mosquitoes are actually attracted to the sound, and if you then trap or kill them, it can reduce the total amount of mosquito mating for that season, but it has no effect on the current female population, and those are actually the mosquitoes that bite us. Male mosquitoes yeah. don't suck blood at all. It's the females that need yeah. those extra nutrients in order to feed their developing eggs. Mm -hmm. Blue light zappers do work as well for overall population control, although some research has suggested that when the mosquitoes explode on contact with the electricity, they can sort of spray outward any diseases they're carrying and make them airborne. And half the problem with mosquitoes is the diseases they carry. So that's not an ideal solution either. Mm. But of course, when all else fails, we turn to science to develop some scary new chemicals to get the job done, <laughs> including N-N-diethylmetatoluamide, also known mm. as DEET. Mm -hmm. And there is no question that DEET works. Unfortunately, it is also absorbed easily through the skin to the point mm -hmm. that about 15% of any DEET application eventually shows up in your urine. Ugh. It's also a common allergen and in rare cases can cause neurological issues such as seizures. No. Yeah, DEET's not great. It can also damage certain fabrics as well as the lenses of glasses. And if all that weren't bad enough, it smells horrendous. Mm -hmm. So, But happily, there are some new alternatives on the market. An all-natural product called Bite Blocker has an active ingredient of 2% soybean oil. And it's been shown to be as effective as 20% DEET, which is the maximum dose recommended for children. Which is, again, not a great sign when the substance mm -hmm. that you're putting onto your body has a safety range. Yeah, well, it's poison. I mean, you know. Yeah, it's, it straight up is. It is poison that you are deciding, I'll take a little chemo if it means the mosquitoes die. Like, it's not good. Aww. Also, while it hasn't been fully researched yet, anecdotal evidence from hikers seems to indicate that Bounce brand dryer sheets work very well at repelling mosquitoes. And they oh. can be just tied to your belt loop instead of rubbed into your skin. Unless, of course, you're a nudist, and then I guess you have to tie it to something else. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what they do. Finally, as Dr. Schwartz points out, if you can't stop them from biting you, you can at least get revenge. I can suck its blood? Well, not quite, but... <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> he, he got way too excited at even That's the prospect right. of that. <laughs> I just was prey of some mosquitoes while I was outside, oh, so no. it's on my mind. Right. Super fair. But yeah, if you catch a mosquito in the act... You can stretch that area of skin around it, and this will trap the mosquito's proboscis and force it to keep sucking in blood until it <gasps> pops like the Ooh. world's worst water balloon. What? So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That is if diabolical. That. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that broke me. That... <laughs> That's but like... Come on, you're wait, thinking about it. Like, you might do it, wouldn't you, Way? 
I don't know. It's it's one thing to, you know, go after an individual mosquito and just like try and get my own blood back. Right, right. <laughs> to to catch a mosquito in the act, stretch out my own skin and then wait for it to explode yeah. all over me. Yeah, that's some what? Bolton Ramsey business. I, I mean, I'm sorry. that that's This is a vendetta. This is a clear like That's right. <laughs> Psychotic. <laughs> no, he definitely like this scientist is clearly taking a certain amount of delight in all the various ways that you can successfully kill mosquitoes. Uh, you know, there's a there's a nod to decency in the article where he's like, you wonder who thought of that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. I wonder about the guy who put it in an article. Like, yeah, yeah. a crazy person, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, I say that as the person who put it in a podcast. So I'm, I'm just as bad. I'm not. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Since we're talking about mosquitoes, let's keep it in the hot weather kind of topic. Vice Magazine is reporting scientists are studying the temperature at which humans spontaneously die with increasing urgency. That, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's information we need to know. But also, how do you study that in any kind of an ethical manner? (laughs) (laughs) Well, these are basically called wet bulb conditions. So if you've never heard the phrase, get ready, you'll be hearing a lot more of it from the rest of your life. Because wet bulb conditions are when heat and humidity can cause otherwise healthy humans to overheat and die. And they're Mm. happening more often than ever. Conditions like this were not expected until the mid 21st century, but you know us, we're always ahead of the overachieving. Curve with this. That's right. Yeah. There was a study that had been done and published last year in Science Advances, and they found over 7,000 instances of these so called wet bulb conditions, which can lead to human deaths. So, wet bulb temperature is specifically the point where evaporation no longer works to cool a person. Oh. Yeah, sounds a little bit familiar, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically that sweat can't come off you. Yeah, it can't evaporate. So, right, most right. of the wet bulb conditions that were studied in this study were concentrated in South Asia, the coastal Middle East, and Southwest North America. Mm. Wet bulb conditions occur when relative humidity is above 95%. And temperatures are at least 88 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right Mm -hmm. outside right now. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's raining and it's definitely over 90 degrees. (laughs) No. According to the study, the human body is essentially unable to withstand wet bulb conditions at all once temperatures hit 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And here's kind of the money quote. Even if they're in perfect health, even if they're sitting in the shade, even if they're wearing clothes that make it easy in principle to sweat, and even if they have an endless supply of water, if there's enough moisture in the air, it's thermodynamically impossible to prevent the body from overheating. I am looking at you, all Texas middle and high schools (laughs) that do this boot camp training thing for football and other sports players during the summer where they're like, you got to tough it out. This is how people die. But a growing number of other regions are starting to near this point, and it includes the southeast U.S., the Gulf of Mexico, and northern Australia. Mm-hmm. Scientists believe that in the short term, reducing exposure to wet bulb temperature is going to be a matter of behavioral adaption, which is avoid these conditions by getting inside with air conditioning. Mm -hmm. But because we're seeing a lot of severe heat all over the country with wildfires and unseasonable weather, 
Even the energy grids in Texas, New York, and other states are starting to show signs of buckling under the pressure of extreme use. Mm. That whole, you know, seek shelter in AC thing starts to feel a little less certain. Yeah. Like how many hundreds of miles do you have to drive before you get to cooler <laughs> weather? It's a long way. <laughs> That is a really good point because Matthew Lewis, the director of communications at Housing Advocacy Group California Yimby, he noted in a recent Twitter thread that wet bulb temperatures could soon be a factor at the helm of climate migration. Quote, many of the mm. places humans currently live on the planet are on their way to being functionally uninhabitable by humans. Well, that's uplifting. <laughs> yeah. So what they're hoping to achieve by releasing this information is to urge weather broadcasts to include these wet bulb indices and in temperature announcements as a matter mm -hmm. of public service, the same way that we already do for air quality or humidity metrics. Sometimes these feels like measurements are the closest that some forecasts come to this. The problem is those units are not standardized across weather stations. Right. And so you don't get a lot of reliability out there. Yeah. I mean, that would be good to know, especially if you're not thinking, you know, you look at the thing and it's like, oh, it's only 95. That's nothing. Yeah. And then you go spend 20 minutes outside and all of a sudden you've just passed out and you don't even notice it. Yeah. It's as they say, it's not just the heat. It's the it's humidity. humidity. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Got another one from fizz.org today. This one's titled, Goldilocks Planets with a Tilt May Develop More Complex Life. Hmm. Since the first discovery of exoplanets in 1992, scientists have been looking for worlds that might support life. It's believed that to sustain even basic life, exoplanets need to be at just the right distance from their stars to allow liquid water to exist. However, other factors are also important, particularly atmospheric oxygen. Oxygen plays a critical role in respiration, uh, as you might know. <laughs> so the scientists produced a sophisticated model of the conditions required for life on Earth to be able to produce oxygen. The researchers found that increasing day length, higher surface pressure, and the emergence of continents all influence ocean circulation patterns and associated nutrient transport in ways that may increase oxygen production. But the most interesting result came when the orbital obliquity was modeled. In other words, how the planet tilts as it circles around its star. Greater tilting increased photosynthetic oxygen in part by increasing the efficiency with which biological ingredients are recycled. The hmm. effect was similar to doubling the amount of nutrients that sustain life. Whoa, wow. So Earth's sphere tilts on its axis at an angle of 23.5 degrees. Uranus is tilted at 98 degrees, whereas Mercury is not tilted at all. For comparison, the Leaning Tower of Pisa sits at around 4 degrees, so planetary mm. tilt can be quite substantial. Mm. But, you know, we don't notice it because gravity and we just look straight up and all that. <laughs> right. The bottom line is that worlds that are modestly tilted on their axes may be more likely to evolve complex life, and this helps us narrow the search for complex, perhaps even intelligent life in the universe. So basically, any habitable planet is guaranteed to have seasons. Yes. So what causes the seasons is not necessarily the tilt. So that will cause the difference in climate between opposite ends of the equator. Oh, you're right, because but it's what, the oval nature that makes the seasons. Yeah, it's the fact that while the Earth rotates, it not only rotates at a tilt, but it also slightly wobbles, right. which causes the, the seasons to change over time. Um, if that's wrong, don't tell me. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, this one comes from Janet M. Davis at The Conversation, and it's called Before Shark Week and Jaws, 
World War II spawned America's shark obsession. And her information on sharks is no idle speculation because Ms. Davis is actually a professor of American studies at the University of Texas who is working on a new book on the history of human shark entanglements tentatively titled Jaws Mania. And I love the word entanglements because that sounds very emotional. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, we're having some drama with humans and sharks that so we really need to just sit down and work out. <laughs> but she says that pop culture historians who point to Jaws as the beginning of our obsession with sharks are about 40 years off the mark because the real turning point was, in fact, World War II, which she says placed more Americans into contact with sharks than at any prior time in history. Yeah, and it was actually when the phrase shark-infested waters entered common usage. As journalists began to report extensively on ships and aircraft that were going down in the Pacific theater. Statistically, at the time, most people had never traveled outside of their county, let alone their state, let alone to the coastline. And now all of a sudden you had all of these people from rural America experiencing (laughs) deep Pacific waters where there are lots of sharks. Mm -hmm. The naval officer and marine scientist H. David Baldridge reported that fear of sharks was a leading cause of poor morale among servicemen. And General George Kenney supported the military's adoption of the new P-38 fighter plane specifically because its longer range diminished the chances of an engine failure or an empty fuel tank over the open water. He said, you look down from the cockpit and you can see schools of sharks swimming around. They never look healthy to a man flying over them. (laughs) (laughs) The military at the time also ran publicity campaigns to combat fear of sharks among the soldiers, including a 1942 travel guide called Castaways Baedeker to the South Seas, which dismissed shark attacks as a bogey of the imagination. (laughs) And when that didn't convince them... They released a 1944 pamphlet titled Shark Sense, which gave more direct advice about how to ward off sharks, including tying off any wounds that they may have suffered during whatever incident tossed them into the water and punching a shark in the nose if it approached them. That's where it came from. Okay. Yes, it's it's 1940s advice. It's been around. <laughs> shark Sense also claimed that it was helpful to grab onto a circling shark's pectoral fin and hold on tightly for as long as you could without drowning. And I don't know how that is going to do anything but piss off the shark, but maybe he thinks, oh, I'm being attacked, I should run away. I don't know. And also, like, the shark's going to take you further underwater, probably. Right, and if you've got a life vest on, I don't know how you're going to hold on that. I mean, just, yeah. It doesn't seem like good advice. And since we've heard punching the shark in the face and we've never heard grab onto its fins, I think there's a reason why. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's been beta tested already. Right, exactly. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Navy and the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, began working together to create a shark repellent for soldiers to carry with them. Fun fact, one of the OSS executive assistants on the project was none other than future TV chef Julia Child. What? That's what she was doing during the war, was working for OSS. What a badass. She helped them experiment with a number of recipes involving clove oil, horse urine, nicotine, rotting shark muscle, and asparagus. But ultimately, they were unsuccessful. And instead, (laughs) in 1945, they released a copper acetate pill they called Shark Chaser, which would dissolve into a dark black dye that would theoretically obscure the floating soldier from sight. And it did work to keep sharks away at least as long as it was present in the water. But often these guys had to wait hours, if not days, for rescue. 
And the shark chaser dye would spread out and dissipate within minutes after it was deployed. So it didn't work either. <laughs> Davis does point out, somewhat ironically, given my first article, that malaria still killed more men during World War II than sharks did. But... <laughs> They nonetheless were responsible for several thousand deaths of soldiers who would have otherwise survived had they crashed over land rather than water. Ooh. And to bring it full circle, among the most deadly of those incidents was the USS Indianapolis disaster, which the fictional ship captain in Jaws was supposedly a survivor of. In the movie, Quint says, 1,100 men went into the water, 316 men came out, and the sharks Ooh. took the rest. Wow. Which... I'm a fan of Jaws, but I'm sorry to say is not entirely accurate. <laughs> so of the original crew of 1,196 men aboard the Indianapolis, 300 of them died immediately in the torpedo blast that took down the ship. And some additional number definitely died of dehydration after being in the open water for five days and were only eaten by the sharks after they were dead. Mm. So... In the end, significantly less than half of the Indianapolis victims were actively hunted by the sharks. But that's still around 400 to 500 men killed in just one incident, and there were plenty others. Mm -hmm. And basically from that point on, sharks were, as Davis puts it, a mindless spectral terror that can strike at any moment. Look, it's only horrible because you were infesting their home. And you were very tasty. I mean, come on. Like... <laughs> <laughs> And I actually went and Googled it. And by coincidence, we are currently in the middle of Shark Week right now. Oh, wow. So if you want more of that sweet, sweet shark content, it's still out there for a few more days. <laughs> nice. Mm -hmm. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Good news, everyone. Yale is reporting that psychedelic spurs growth of neural connections lost in depression. Oh, good. So this is another like LSD is good for you. Hooray, psychedelics. Pretty much. We're talking specifically about psilocybin, which is a naturally occurring compound found in some mushrooms or magic mushrooms, depending on your familiarity. They have been <laughs> studied already as a potential treatment for depression for years, but exactly how it works in the brain and how long beneficial results might last is still unclear. However, mm -hmm. a new study from Yale researchers showed that a single dose of psilocybin given to mice prompted an immediate and long-lasting increase in connections between neurons. Yale's Alex Kwan, associate professor of psychiatry and neuroscience and senior author of the paper, said, quote, we not only saw a 10% increase in the number of neuronal connections, but also they were on average about 10% larger, so the connections were stronger as well. So shrooms makes you smarter is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing bigger, better, faster, stronger, at least when it comes to <laughs> neurons in your brain. And, right. and low dose and not, you know, yeah, environment, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, what they did is they used a laser scanning microscope and they imaged dendritic spines in high resolution and tracked them for multiple days in living mice. They found increases in the number of dendritic spines and in their size within 24 hours of administration of psilocybin. Wow. Also, mice subjected to stress showed behavioral improvements and increased neurotransmitter activity after being given psilocybin. Hmm. It may be the novel psychological effects of psilocybin itself that spurs the growth of neuronal connections, which is a really interesting thing to say because it's almost like they're saying having this mystical experience does the work. So these new connections may be the structural changes the brain uses to store new experiences, which would definitely open up another avenue of neurochemical research. Yeah, it's like fertilizer for the garden of your brain cells. What a wonderful way of putting it, especially since we are talking about mushrooms, which are... That's true. Um, I yeah. didn't even think about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah. that was that so was lyrical. Accidental. Well done. 
<laughs> Next link. Next link. So this article comes to us from NewScientist.com, and it's titled, Fish are becoming addicted to methamphetamines seeping into rivers. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, are they more productive? Are they breeding more? <laughs> <laughs> They're working. They're very, very hardworking now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very low output work, but they are working more. So illicit drug use is a growing global health concern, mm-hmm. the article leads. Pavel Horky at the Czech University of Life Sciences says, where methamphetamine users are, there is also methamphetamine pollution. Mm. Humans excrete methamphetamines into wastewater, but treatment plants aren't designed to deal with such substances. And because of this, as treated wastewater flows into streams, so do methamphetamines and other drugs. Wow. Kind of seems like a little bit of an oversight to me. I did not realize that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we eventually get that back again. Like, yeah, yeah. it's bad for the fish, too. But if they're not filtering it out at all, that means we're all constantly low-dosing meth if we're in an area that's... how do you think we kept productivity (laughs) levels high during the pandemic? Come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Although this is specifically seemed to be about the Czech Republic. So this may be a Czech Republic problem. But, you know, who knows? Maybe we have the same issue here. So in some streams... In the Czech Republic, methamphetamine concentrations have been measured at hundreds of nanograms per liter, according to Horky and his colleagues, but the effect of these levels on aquatic animals has been unclear. To investigate, they set up an experiment to detect possible adverse side effects of this hidden ecological epidemic. They divided 120 hatchery-reared brown trout into two 350-liter tanks. The water in one tank contained methamphetamines <laughs> matching concentrations measured in wild streams, while the other was left uncontaminated as a control. Oof. So this is science. We are right. drugging fish because <laughs> we need to know just how much fish have been drugged in what quantities in this other place. Yeah. Science. That's great. We, we uh, have to drug them to find out how much they've already been drugged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After eight weeks, the researchers removed the methamphetamine from the experimental tank. Oh, they just made them go through withdrawal. They're like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, intentionally. So during the following 10-day withdrawal period, Horky tested fish selected at random for signs of addiction and withdrawal. (laughs) To do this, he constructed a tank in which water could flow in on one side and out the other as if a stream were passing through the enclosure. One side of the flow, however, contained the same level of methamphetamine that the experimental tank had contained. The control fish showed no preference for one side of the simulated stream or the other. But the methamphetamine-exposed fish repeatedly chose to stay in the drugged water. (laughs) You know, understandably. Sure, I'm not looking down on the fish. It clearly has a problem and needs support and rehab. But it was a problem (laughs) that we gave them on purpose. Yeah, we 100% addicted it to this stuff. But, you know, it's already happened, so we may as well look at the upside to it. But what's more, (laughs) the methamphetamine-exposed fish had elevated levels of methamphetamine in their brain tissue and were also less active than normal, which may reduce their chances of surviving and reproducing. Horky ends by saying drug reward cravings by fish could overshadow natural rewards like foraging or mating, Mm. and such contamination could change the functioning of whole ecosystems. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe bears eat the fish, and then they get on meth, too. (laughs) Right. And then they're just like, they just start drinking out of the stream. Yeah, and they're like, (laughs) I'll only take fish out of this stream because these are the good meth fish. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, It's fraught. Fraught, I tell you. (laughs) We probably shouldn't have had a population-wide addiction to methamphetamines ourselves if we're really looking to lay blame here. (laughs) That's true. 
it's complicated. <laughs> but I hope the Czech Republic figures it out. I hope we don't have this problem. But if we do, I hope we figure it out because it's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, the be- I think the best we can hope for is that our water treatment plants are capable or willing to pull it out of the water. Because I guarantee you we have meth in our water systems. It's yeah, just we have yeah. everything yeah. in our water. We've got systems. at least yeah. a ton of Prozac. We've got I mean maybe and maybe the Prozac mm-hmm. balances out the the meth. <laughs> like maybe that's the deal is they only have meth and we have meth and a lot of designer drugs. So Oh my I, goodness. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, it sounds like we're saying we're just going to put some Prozac in the stream and then just call it quits. Yeah, probably. Then again though, they're finding out if they have meth in their brains. That fish definitely died. For them to go into his brain to find out if he had meth in there. So That's true. maybe being alive on meth is better than being dead. <laughs> wow. That's true. Wow. Yeah. I'm going real dark here. This is, mm. <laughs> this is where I am today. You've already told me if I go outside in the weather right now, I'm going to die. <laughs> so, you know, like, what's the point? <laughs> Well, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, y'all. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us for what little time we have left. There are many other articles on Damn Interesting that we did not have time to get to. Some of those articles include, Why do women tend to outlive men? The argument for a permanent Olympic city? And tiny snails help solve a giant mystery. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to help keep us on the air and support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 